Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning again. Uh, it's great to be here worshiping with you. As I said at the beginning, I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, and it's just a delight to be with you here on this first Sunday of Lent. Um, just to highlight again that we have the Stations of the Cross posted around the walls throughout the season of Lent. Um, done in an abstract way, we've added the cards. So take some time throughout the day to uh, spend time with those and meditate throughout these weeks as we move through Lent together. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome again to the first Sunday of Lent. This season is 40 days, um, since that's how long Jesus is said to have been in the wilderness in the Gospels. And so each year we begin Lent with that Gospel reading of Jesus in the wilderness. If you look back on Christian history, there's a long tradition of Christians embracing the wilderness. From the earliest centuries of Christianity, Christians fled to the deserts to pursue a life with God. Um, first as hermits, and then uh, in intentional community together. And those what they call monastic communities, uh, especially when you get to Egypt, they, you, you find the desert fathers and the mothers, they've produced some of the works um, that we still use today that have left an indelible mark on Christian spirituality. Um, and one of those works that comes to us from the 5th century, which is about 400 years after Uh, Jesus was crucified and rose, is the sayings of the desert fathers. Uh, It's this collection of wise sayings. You can kind of think of it like spiritual proverbs from the monks of Egypt. And there's this story that comes from that document uh, about a monk who wants to be delivered from sin. And he uses the word salvation. He says, how can I be saved? Um, And and here's what the saying is. It's kind of a, a little bit of a story. It says... A brother visited Abba Macarius, the Egyptian, and he said to him, Abba, which means father in Aramaic, tell me a saying indicating how I can be saved. The elder said, go to the tomb and insult the dead. So the brother went, he insulted and he stoned them and he came to the elder and they said nothing. He said to him, no, said the brother. And the elder said to him, go again and praise them. So the brother went and he praised them, saying, holy apostles and righteous ones. Then he came back to the elder and he told him, I praised them. And they made no response. He said to him, no, said the brother. And the elder said to him, you know how much you insulted them and they gave no answer and how much you praised them. But they said nothing back to you. So, too, must you become dead if you want to be saved. Pay no attention like the dead, either to injustice of people or to their praise. Then you can be saved. And if I can paraphrase what he's saying here, his encouragement is to walk with God so intimately, so closely, 
that in the moments when you're treated unjustly, the peace of God so surrounds you so greatly that you are unmoved in your trust of God. And uh, interestingly, what's also true in this is even though that's hard for us to do, we don't often think of the opposite reality. What we don't realize is that uh, the opposite can be equally as difficult. We're to walk with God so closely, so intimately, that when we're the object of people's praises, when everything is going well, when we're at the top of our game and, and all is going our way, we shouldn't make that the object of our faith either. Nor should we think that that has to be an indication that finally we're actually following the Lord now that things are going well. Even in the life of Jesus, in this early gospel passage, his baptism precedes the wilderness. So just in the last chapter, we had his baptism. Heaven's voice thunders, and there's this acclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the peace of God rests on the Messiah. And Jesus is led then by that same Spirit into the wilderness. Both were necessary in the mysterious plan of God. Whether the assaults of the devil were pressing against him or the accolades of the crowd were coming towards him, nothing moved Jesus from his fellowship with the Father and obedience to the Father's will. That was the central part of his life. So life with God begins, it continues, and it ends with faith in Christ. It's this pilgrimage with the Holy Spirit on the road that leads to God's rest. Satan would like to derail us uh, from that course that separates us uh, and separate us from the dependence that we're cultivating on our God who loves us. And what he does is he wants to distort our sense of what we need so that he can provide empty solutions to problems that we don't actually have. We have to be aware of where we are the most vulnerable so that we can recognize uh, Satan's spiritual shortcuts, which are actually no spiritual shortcuts at all. They're dead ends. And so in verses one and two, we're called to be most alert. You know, when we feel at the very end of ourselves, Jesus has eaten nothing for 40 days. And the text says that he was hungry. And it was at that point that Satan came to him. Having the images that we often do in popular culture of the devil with like a goblin with horns is probably unhelpful at the very least. He's somebody who opposes the will of God, um, the God who loves us. And, and, who would, and he would like for us to be subjected to the ways that we're broken and our sinfulness. So even, even when we're redeemed in Christ, there are moments of trial that we find ourselves in that you and I are particularly vulnerable. Um, I remember somebody giving my wife and I some advice uh, a long time ago, early in our marriage. They gave us an acronym, and it was HALT, H-A-L-T. Uh, if you are hungry... Angry, lonely, or tired, then now is not the best time to have a hard conversation with your spouse. Uh, some of you may have heard that before, because those are particular moments of vulnerability for us. And there are places um, in us that are tender uh, because of those kinds of things, or because of trauma, or, or because of hurt that we've faced in the past. And if those things aren't dealt with, those become the vulnerable places that Satan uses to remind us how broken we are and that he would like to offer to fix it for us. 
And so many of the arguments that you find that occur both inside and outside the church often come from hurt people who are not working on that hurt in healthy ways. Hunger, resentments, feelings of abandonment or betrayal, physical exhaustion, past traumas and hurts, unmet expectations, insecurities, feelings of inadequacy. These are all types of things that just some examples of places of vulnerability that Satan likes to exploit in his attempt to derail us from our life with God. But our pilgrimage with Jesus is a slow type of recentering of our lives on the God who loves us and the God who loves to redeem his creation and make it new. The Christian life uh, needs to be a habit of listening to God uh, in his word and in worship and growing deeper in honesty with God as we lay before him our desires. The more honest that you and I can become before the Lord, the more open we are to that slow healing work of the Holy Spirit. And the more we build up this resistance to the ancient errors that are cloaked in new and quick ways to fix ourselves which again are not actual solutions, um, they're spiritual dead ends. And so first we need to recognize those places of vulnerability. Second, we need to recognize and then reject Satan's shortcuts um, towards us feeling fulfilled. So when Jesus is hungry, Satan offers him a way to make bread. And he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus is the son of God. We learned that from the last chapter and he could actually do exactly what Satan told him to do, but neither food nor the desire for food um, recognize our our evil in this case, that, that food is actually okay. It is good. The problem was that what should be central in the life of obedience uh, is dependence on the father's will, not, not Jesus eating here. Both Adam and Eve ate food Uh, Because of a lie that they believed uh, and that they could become like God. And so here you have Jesus being uh, a new Adam. They wanted to know good and evil. Jesus here is a second Adam undoing an ancient error to show us that our personal freedom and autonomy isn't the end goal of humanity. But it's the dependence that we need to cultivate on our loving creator. Satan comes to Jesus a second time. And he promises him authority over all the kingdoms of the earth in exchange for Jesus bowing down and worshiping him. And when I thought about this first, I'm not actually convinced Satan could have actually delivered on that promise. Um, Those things actually don't belong to him. But that's not what matters. I mean, sometimes Satan comes to us with a lie of authority that he doesn't actually have. What actually he needs to do is just compel somebody to trust that he can, not that he actually can. So it's interesting to me that one of the cardinal virtues in Catholic theology is called temperance. Some people call it moderation. And Jesus here has a clear sense of what is enough. And that's based on his dependence on God. He isn't plagued with a deep desire for a greater amount of wealth or authority. But he uses the scriptures to reframe Satan's temptation in light of proper worship. Our sense of commitment, um, our pursuit of temperance is actually deeply intertwined with our formation in worship and the dependence that we have on our relationship with God. And finally, Satan comes to Jesus in a third temptation to bring him to the temple 
And he appeals again to Jesus' sonship. And he again quotes scripture and addresses our good human desire to know that we are going to be okay. The right answer, however, isn't to test God, which Jesus recognizes. Seeing the greater issue, Jesus quotes to him scripture about not putting the Lord to the test. There's a greater principle involved. Satan appeals in all three examples to desires that are basically human and basically good. But in all three of the temptations, he provides um, spiritual shortcuts that are dead ends. And he does that using scripture and half-truths. And half-truths are lies. So they're dead ends because they move our growing and loving union with our God out of the center of our lives. And instead, what they replace at the center is a deep desire for personal freedom and autonomy, regardless of who I have to hurt to get there. So there is a, there's a holy slowness in building defenses against the temptations of Satan. It's not that Jesus was unprepared for this. No, he'd, he'd spent years preparing for this. It involves scripture. It involves constancy in worship. It involves perseverance. Satan knows the Bible. And I used to half-jokingly say with one of my professors how you can really make the Bible say whatever you want it to. Um, People can come up with some really erroneous ideas about God, about the nature of people, about how we use our bodies, about identity, about wealth and contentment, about war, about power, uh, about our relationship to political power, about family, about suffering, um, all sorts of things they can use uh, scripture to twist ideas and distort them. And each idea can be backed by a verse or a set of verses that if you wanted to string it together, you could present a compelling case for whatever idea is there. Um, with a long enough Google search, you could find somebody who's found a, a set of scriptures for almost any view imaginable. Um, and that's happened to me in, in talking to people before where Google is the main authority. Uh, and instead, what we need to do is Learn uh, the scriptures with the people of God. As Cranmer, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, has this famous collect that prays, we should so hear uh, the scriptures, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures wasn't actually divorced uh, from the liturgical life of God's people. And that's really important. And the same needs to be true for you and for me. The worship of God's church historically is the Holy Spirit's way of framing our holding together the picture that's painted in God's scripture. The difficulty, I think, with with a lot of us moderns um, is that we read a lot of um, untested uh, literature. And it's best to read the scriptures with the departed uh, who have been tested by the church and then to test what's untested. Um, So it's good to read moderns. Don't hear me saying it's not. But always remember to prioritize what's tested. And we want to read, mark, learn, inwardly digest the scriptures daily. And, And we do that in a way that is deeply rooted in the worship life of God's people. So it's not about perfection. It is about having a stick to 
Remember that Jesus was in all ways like we were, except without sin. And one of Satan's tempting thoughts for us is that if you've messed up, you should just give up. You should stop fighting because it's pointless now. There are going to be times when we make mistakes. That's going to happen, Um, whether that's in relationships at work, in marriage, raising children. We are going to make mistakes. There are going to be things that we say or that we do in life that are going to bring shame, that are going to bring resentment or hurt or disappointment to people. And when those things come, we have to fall back on a life of truth telling before God and the training that we do in knowing the scriptures in the context of a life of worship. God has grace for us um, and God's grace for us is in our truth telling which we could also call the beginning of repentance before God. We can't lie to God, right? He sees, he sees our hearts. So as we grow in telling the truth to God and we fill ourselves with his word in the context of the worship of the saints, we prepare ourselves for deliverance, for salvation from Satan, from the world and from the flesh. Remember um, the monk, again, who insulted and praised the dead and nothing happened to him. We strive to be immovable when we're faced with trials, not because of our own inner fortitude, not because of faith in how good things are going elsewhere, but because of a life that is perfectly centered on loving union and dependence on the God who loves us, who's created us and has made us to be children of his in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we ask you to give us patience in troubles, humility in comforts, constancy in temptations, and victory against all our spiritual enemies. Grant us sorrow for our sins, thankfulness for your benefits, fear of your judgments, love of your mercies, and mindfulness of your presence forevermore. Amen.